One of the uh, most significant influences on the 21st century uh, was a early 20th century English journalist. Uh, he uh, was profoundly, he, he was prolific, wrote all the time, never had an unwritten down thought. But one of his geniuses was to be able to say in a few words what people took books to say, and therefore it would be remembered. His name was G.K. Chesterton. There was once an essay in the London Times that said, in a thousand words or less, what is the biggest problem in the world? And Chesterton said, the biggest problem in the world is me. It's inside each one of us. One time, Chesterton was asked, what do you think is the most important thing to know about Christianity? And Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. That they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and constantly in trouble. They would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and constantly in trouble. I get one out of three of those right almost all the time. (laughs) With all this promise of a life that's supposed to be different... How do so many of us live lives that are not just ordinary, they're just a little below the ordinary? You keep waiting for the, for the good life to show up. So many fail to finish well. Last week, we had the joy of uh, seeing all the kids do the musical and D, and they talked about life as a journey, life as a race. And hope, what we've been talking about all then, hope is the ability to stay focused on the finish line of the race. Hope is not to worry about what's happening right now, but to stay focused on the finish line. How's that going for you this week? Now, when she was talking about running, Dee uh, spoke from personal experience. She had been a great athlete. She had... Uh, was a runner in high school and in college. She played volleyball. Uh, she power lifts now. I, I power eat. The, the only running I do now is uh, to Dairy Queen. And so I'm not going to talk about the race of life from personal perspective. I'm going to only use two images out of this uh, same passage, one at the beginning and one at the end, because I want to come at it from a different perspective. Most famous race in the world, almost certainly the Boston Marathon, right? Started literally before our country was formed. Great moments throughout, overcomes even explosions in recent years. But the most iconic part of the Boston Marathon is not 26 miles down the road at the finish line. The most memorable part of the Boston Marathon is 20 and a half miles in. When you finish going through the shops, you turn to a slight hill, and the hill goes up for about a mile and a half to Beacon. And that hill is called Heartbreak Hill. You are 20 and a half miles into a race, you're just about dead, and all of a sudden you have to not climb, you have to run up a hill. It is the place where more falls occur, in that mile and a half, more falls occur than in the rest of the entire race, and more people drop out of the race at Heartbreak Hill than anywhere else in the marathon. I've been thinking about life as a marathon and what causes us to fall and what causes us to drop out. 
My, uh, my first year here, uh, 25 years ago, my, uh, the end of my first year here, the beginning of my second year here, uh, we had on staff a couple of wonderful retired clergy who worked part-time in pastoral visitation and hospital calling, great people. One of them was named Carl, a retired Lutheran pastor, terrific guy, assistant to the bishop, and uh, often, frankly, a little bit of a mentor to me at 36 years old. He would say, no, 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 don't say that. Oh, no, 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 don't say that. John, you might consider, and, and, I, and I would listen. I got a call uh, one day, early in my second year here, that um, uh, one of our staff had been involved in a series of affairs. And before I could gather the pastors to deal with this, I was going to have Carl stand behind me and say, look at their faces, Carl. The Presbytery exec came and said, it's uh, Carl Manfred. I said, that's impossible. But I took Carl out and uh, we took a long drive. And I, I remember, just like it was yesterday, we stopped at Dairy Queen. We stopped at Dairy Queen and uh, ordered uh, a couple of shakes, and he, uh, he not only admitted it and broke down, it, it, he was almost glad to be caught. And in our conversation, um, he turned to me and he said, so this means I've been disqualified from the race, right? I've been disqualified. I'm I'm 74 years old. I've been disqualified from the race. This is pastor shorthand. I knew what he meant. I've been disqualified from the race is a reference to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, the, the Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that in a race everybody wins, but only one gets the prize? So run to get the prize. They run for a crown that perishes, but we, we run for a crown that lasts forever. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't like a fight like a shadow boxer. I make my body a slave. So that after I have preached to others, I won't be disqualified for the prize. That's what Carl was saying. I'm at the end of the race, and I've called others to follow me, and I've been disqualified. And just with tears pouring down his face, he said, And John, this is all they're ever going to remember. 50 years, and this is, this is what they'll remember. And, and I ended up trying to comfort this man who had done so much harm and who still had a race to finish. He had hit Heartbreak Hill, and he had fallen down, and he was in grave danger of stopping the race. The Apostle Paul uses this image a lot. He obviously is a sports fan, he obviously is not a hockey fan because he, he talks about the race. He said to the Galatians, I wanted to be sure that I hadn't been running my race in vain. I wanted to make sure that I hadn't been, In other words, Paul is saying, I wanted to make sure you were right there behind me, okay? I'm not running alone. You were running a great race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? People run. You all run in life. You're going through the race of faith and, and along the way people lose their way and they fall down or they just lose hope. Hope that they can do it. Hope that they can not even win, just finish. They lose hope and when we lose hope 
we catch the disease of discouragement. Discouragement is discourage. I have lost courage. I have lost hope. People say hope springs eternal. Anyone who lives in Minnesota knows that that is a lie from hell. (laughs) There is no spring. Hope does not spring eternal. It's like saying the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, the grass is not always greener on the other side. The grass is always greener where it's watered. This week we're going to look at weeds and crabgrass that choke out the hope on the race to the cross, that trip us up on Heartbreak Hill. And I want to use the same passage that Dee did last week from a different perspective. The writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 11, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then spends the whole of chapter 11 talking about ancient heroes of the faith. And in chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He finishes, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, look at him, who endured such opposition so you won't grow weary and lose heart, so you won't lose hope. This is a perfect time to talk about this because hope is coming to town and despair is going to meet hope at the city gates. Hope and despair are going to have a car crash at the city gates of Jerusalem this week. Some of you are in the same place in the race. Hope and despair are coming at each other. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next is what you do with the word, therefore. Remember how it's in chapter 12 it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us... That's called an application. When you say therefore, when you see therefore, you say, what's it there for? It means I'm supposed to do something. Ray Johnson says, but the next verse didn't say what I thought. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us... He said, I thought it should say, let us pray. Let us study the Bible. Let us give money to the poor. But the writer startled us. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles so easily. In other words, if we want to be spiritually healthy, if you want to run the race with God, then job number one is to let go of anything that hinders you, that has the power to kill hope or faith. God is saying, if you want to be a person of hope, You have to let go of everything toxic. I'd like to do a toxicity check on your life. That means I have to quit preaching and start meddling. uh, And to help that, at the end of each of the pews, under the pew, there's a basket. Everybody take out the basket, please. Everybody at the end of the pew, there's a basket under your pew. 
There you go, either in front of you or right behind you. Did you take the one in front of you or the, the one under you? Okay. Everybody should have a basket. And take a pen and pass. Everybody gets a pen. The ushers tried to give everybody that was here a bulletin today. If you don't have a bulletin, just grab a sheet of paper. Everybody. We're going to do a hope checkup today. I'd like to see how much hope is in your life. And so I'd like you, in the sermon notes part of your bulletin, just to draw at the top of that sermon notes a line straight across. On one hand, put zero, and on the other end, put ten. Am I going too fast? A line, zero to ten. How much hope do you have today? What I'd like to suggest is that if you're a ten... You are hope-filled. You're not hopeful, you're hope-filled. You're positive that you have already won the lottery even though you did not buy a ticket. You are hopeful. If you're one, you are discouraged. You're, You're depressed. You're not at all surprised to find that the stupid pen that they gave you doesn't work. (laughs) But you know where you would sign. Okay, so four, uh, let's say four to six is normal going into the race. Life, four of those for you who are a little more conservative, six for those of you, four, five, six, somewhere in there. That's, that's where we spend a lot of our time. Put an X next to where you are in terms of hope today. And if you are a nine or a ten, please feel free to leave. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a lot to say to you, but if you're under 8.9... Or you're a 9 or a 10, you're doing fine, but you have a friend who is hopeless. Maybe you want to write down four words that are are, are below to see how that would affect the hope that God gives you for life. I believe discouragement, that 0 to 5 part of the scale, discouragement has four keys. It's universal. Everybody gets it. You don't have to write these down. It's repeating. Everybody is discouraged repeatedly. It is deadly. In other words, discouragement, hopeless people make life worse. It's deadly. And the fourth thing is it's not only universal and repeated and deadly, it's contagious. Hopelessness is contagious. So we need to look, says the writer to the Hebrews, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us see everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's find the things that kill our hope. Start there. So I'm going to suggest that there are millions of them, but here are four enemies of hope. Things that hinder or sins that entangle. The first, I would suggest, write down the word busyness. Are you busy or are you still? We live in a microwave world. We are constantly on the treadmill. We get up, we go hard, we pursue all the good things of life, and that's not bad. One of the things that I believe about everything that hinders is that these are not bad things, they just get in the way of the best things that God has for me, and I'm so busy getting the good things, pursuing the good life, that it squeezes out the God life. And part of the reason that it does it, busy people lack perspective. Busy people lack perspective. The 
sort of turning the corner premier of communist China was Chao Enlai. And, and Chao Enlai uh, changed again what China would be like for their, our lifetimes. One time he was giving a press conference, very unusual, but the, the French ambassador was in town and one of the people came up, one of the reporters said, uh, Mr. Premier, uh, tell us, what do you think of the French Revolution? Trying to get China in trouble. And, and Chao stops for a minute and he goes, I think it's too soon to tell. It's only been 200 years. There's perspective. There's somebody who says, you cannot know how it's going unless you have perspective. Jesus had perspective. All four of these sources of despair are met by four sources of hope in Holy Week. It says here that in the passage that we should fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him, he saw joy before him, he saw joy out ahead, he endured the cross. He had perspective, he saw what was really there, even if it was on the other side of a trial and betrayal and a tomb, the joy was set before him. And he could focus his hope on that. I believe that one reason for the Sabbath, one reason that the Sabbath is in the top ten commands of God, is that you need to stop. You need to let God speak to you and say, I know how you feel, but this is how you're real. I know how it's really going. One reason for the Sabbath is to get fresh eyesight, fresh perspective. Let me suggest that most of your life looks like this car. That's how you see life. You can't see what's coming. But you sure hope that that is dawn and not a train. But you can't tell. This is what worship does. When you stop and are still, you don't scrub off the windshield. You say, God, where am I? God, what's next? And it's not just coming to church. What if, what if you say, I come to church every week. I don't understand why I don't see this. Well, it's because except for 20 minutes a week, your life looks like this. <laughs> Are you too busy to receive the hope that God offers you? The second uh, word I write down that I think robs people of hope is guilt. People live in the past and they obsess either about their glory days, the good old days, or they obsess about their failures. Jesus, again, shows how to get past guilt. This week, he will be betrayed and slandered and crucified and from the cross he looks down and says forgive them they don't know what they're doing he refuses to live in resentment and instead of heaping on guilt he wants to offer grace I believe that guilt and resentment kill hope I, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the story of two monks who've taken a vow of silence and a vow of chastity and a vow of poverty and they are walking down the road to, 
to the monastery the next night, and they come to a stream, and at the stream is a beautiful young woman who can't swim across the stream, and they stop, and they can't even talk to each other about this, and so finally the older monk goes up, and he picks the young woman up and carries her through the water across the stream and sets her down, and the the two monks go on. And, And five miles later, the young monk breaks out of his silence and says, I can't believe you did that! You touched a woman! What were you thinking? And the old monk said, well, brother, I, uh, I, I put her down on the other side of the shore, but it sounds to me like you're still carrying her with you. That's what, that's what guilt and resentment do to hope. They carry it with us. Jesus was not the only person that had a bad week. Peter had a bad week. He denied Jesus. Judas had a bad week. He betrayed Jesus. The difference between the two of their fates is that Judas allowed his fall to knock him out of the race and he ran away from the grace of God. Peter allowed himself to be picked up and receive grace that changed his future. Is guilt or resentment robbing you of hope? There are no fatal falls in the race unless we stay down. Third one. Uh, the, The third thing I thought became an enemy of hope, what hinders or the sin that entangles, is the idea of worry. I I think you're a bunch of worry warts. I do. I think some of you have taken anxiety to a professional level. You are already thinking of new things to worry about that haven't even happened yet. Some of you have professional training lawyers in being professional warriors. And it can seep into our soul. I've got to tell you, I think that there's a difference between being stupid and being anxious. And Jesus worried. This week shows us Jesus goes to a place and he's by himself and he is so worried, he's so anxious that he's literally, he sweats blood, Right? Please, God, don't make this happen. Please. Is there any way that I cannot do this? Being worried is not the same as a life of anxiety. If uh, we were to ask you to mark where you are on the, that same scale between worry and peacefulness, where would it go? Warren Wiersbe says most Christians are already being crucified on a cross between two thieves like Jesus. They're being crucified on a cross between two thieves. One thief is yesterday's regrets, and the other thief is tomorrow's worries. Is worry choking out the hope that you need to see the finish line? Jesus promised his disciples three things. Fearlessness, happiness, and constant trouble. The last thing that robs hope that I'm going to talk about is the idea that you lose hope when you compare. You are, by any measure of human existence, you are succeeding just by sitting here, no matter your age. You are part of the most blessed generation in the most blessed empire of human history. And what robs you of hope 
is that you insist on comparing yourself to others. We live in a bigger, better, brighter, faster culture that does not do well with contentment. Jesus understood that, that last week. They're walking in and out of Jerusalem. His disciples are walking with him. They point to the temple. They say, can you believe this? This, they don't have anything like this in Nazareth. How come I can't build something like this in my backyard? And Jesus says, in three days, this will all be knocked down. This goes away. Brothers and sisters, don't compare to what goes away. Because comparison robs us of hope. We live in a social media world. Not, not everybody. My, my 80-year-old, 82-year-old mother-in-law is having a little trouble getting into the digital world. But she signed up for Facebook a couple of years ago. It was great. Uh, Jan signed up for Facebook when she turned 80, and, and uh, she asked you know, her sons and daughters to be her friends, and that's all the friends she had for a long time. And Facebook actually sends notes out to people. Please be Jan's friend. She doesn't have friends. <laughs> what happened was that Laura came home and said, Mom, what's this? And she found she had a hundred friends that she hadn't clicked on. Oh, I don't want to bother them. <laughs> and and that, that sounds okay. We, you know, you've got a lot more friends than that. But it came home to me. I've started to do this stupid Twitter thing all of human wisdom in 140 characters. But I've started to do it, and I feel, you know, i got like 400 followers. You know, that's pretty good. If you count my dog. <laughs> and so I go to a conference uh, Thursday and Friday, and I sit down to a good friend of mine, and I, I let slip that I had... No, no, he said, I saw your tweet. And I knew he's not one of my 400. And I said, oh, that's, that's, that's great. How are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm not doing very well. I got, I got like 40,000. I hated him. <laughs> I've got like 40,000. He's an author. Well, of course you have 40,000. But he said, I have 40,000. I was talking to this guy, a mutual friend of ours, and he's got 667,000 followers. And we both hated that other guy. <laughs> and what made it worse is that my wife, who has started this great blog, has a friend who is a housewife who has no advanced degrees, and this person has one million followers. Unbelievable. Laura writes her little blog, and she says, I think I'm going to burn this before I send it, because she's in danger of comparing herself. It did not help me much to realize that there are people on Twitter who have 8.7 million followers. They are actresses. And I have a sense that instead of the ideas that are being discussed, we are talking about the length of their legs. But we compare. And when we compare, we despair. Because there's always somebody better. Where, um, where does life-giving, faith, where does sustaining hope come from in your darkest days. You'll have dark days. You may have one right now. Holy week is a dark week. Where does faith and hope come from? 
When we've unwrapped, even if just for a second, we unwrap the sin that entangles. We throw away the things that hinder. We get up, we're ready to run the race. Where does hope to finish the race come from? I, I think it, it, it starts with the idea that you stop and you listen, right? You have to stop instead of just running off. I, I want to say this in a non-sacrilegious fashion. Please, for the love of God, stop. For God's sake, stop. This week, stop. Probably the most ignored verse in the entire Bible is in Psalm 46 that says, Be still and know that I am God. I think that says you cannot know that he is God unless you are still. You'll find yourself refilled with hope when you are still long enough to see that we are meant to be running the race together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those people that ran before us, all those people in this room that want to run with us, since we are surrounded by people who want to cheer us on and point us toward the detour and pick us up, set out a straight path. We will run with hope if we see that the key is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not, listen to this, fix your eyes on Jesus, not so that you'll run faster. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not so that you will do better and be a better Christian. That is not how we have hope. We fix our eyes on Jesus, not to run faster, but to depend on Jesus. The Apostle Paul doesn't call the people in house churches Christians. He doesn't call them Christian. He calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. To be a Christian is a club. To be in Christ means I am close to Christ. Christ is close to me. I can see Christ, and I know Christ sees me. That gives hope. We have hope because God is having Christ do what we can never do. Run with us. Come back for us. Run beside us. Pick us up when we fall. Do you need that hope? Hebrews 11 and 12 are two of the great chapters of the Bible. They really are. They talk about hope. They talk about other stuff too. My, my daughter, Katie, does not think that this is the best chapter of the Bible because it, a verse in it was taught in Sunday school. Not one of these verses, but verse 11 of uh, Hebrews. Uh, he, Hebrews 12 was taught to her. And one day she was bad and Laura gave her a timeout and she's sitting on the steps and she comes out, Laura comes out to her because she's sat there long enough, about three minutes. And uh, she comes out, and as she does, she hears mumbling, Katie mumbling, and she stops out of sight, mumbling. What is it? And, and what Katie is mumbling is, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. <laughs> no discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. But afterwards, there is a harvest of peace. She didn't know what that meant. No discipline is pain. She, she didn't know, and so Laura, bless her heart, is wise enough to just turn around and hide her laughter and thank God that the child is learning something. I would not have done that. I'm a pastor. I would have gone and sat next to her. I would have ruined the whole moment by saying, oh, that's so true, Katie, but you know what the best verse, the best verse is what comes next. Next it says, so take a new grip with your tired hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that the lame and weak won't fall but be strong. 
Take a new grip with your tired hands. In 1968, the Olympics were in Mexico. Powerful time, but a change because of the heat, and especially because of the elevation, they ran the marathon late in the afternoon. Because it was so high and hot, almost a third of the marathoners didn't even finish the race. World-class runners, almost a third did not finish the race in Mexico City. Joseph Mamakulde wins the race in two hours and seven minutes in the late afternoon. And they then had the ceremony right afterwards to a full stadium in the late afternoon. The sun goes down over an hour and 15 minutes later. The last runner is still on the course and comes in sight of the stadium now in the dark. And he's limping and he is hurt and he has fallen. He's from Tanzania. His name is John Stephan Aquari. And Aquari has no chance of winning. He is 40 minutes behind the person in front of him. And he goes into a stadium that is now filled with light and empty of people. People have left the stadium. And he walks to the final lap. And then he starts to jog again. And he jogs around. And in this empty stadium, people stop what they are doing and they watch. And slowly, they start to applaud. This man doesn't know that the race is over. His race is is not over. And afterwards... He's interviewed, and the interviewer says, when you heard the music playing for the award ceremony, you knew you had lost and the race was over. Why did you stop? Why didn't you stop when you knew you had lost and the race was over? And Stephen Aquari said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start this race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish this race. That's hope. That's a focus on why we run and where we go. This Holy Week, King Jesus is waiting for you at the finish line. And if you fall down, he'll come and get you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters here will um, look at those things that hinder, those sins that entangle, that quench their hope, And that they will circle, whether it is hurry, or guilt, or worry, or comparison. They will circle one and not try harder. They will circle one and look at you and say, Lord Jesus, help me. They will turn to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and say, Lord Jesus, pick me up. Give me hope to run. Give me hope to share. Bless me this holy week because you love me every day. Let us run with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.